Good morning, church. Please stand to your feet this morning. Man, you are looking fantastic. Today is a wonderful day. You know, last week we had baptisms after service, and it was not a wonderful day. It was a cold, cold day. It was an amazing day, says my wife. Did you get in the water? No, you didn't. That's right. I forgot. Uh, but it was it was great. I, we actually had three baptisms last week, and yeah. We've never baptized anyone in that kind of temperature or weather, and so I, I gave them the option of rescheduling, like every American pastor would. <laughs> I was like, hey, I, I would not at all blame you if you just want to push it back. We can wait and see what the weather's doing over the next several weeks or when it heats up in the spring. And the response from all of them was, I've been waiting for this. I'm excited for the next step. Let's do it. And I was like, yes, let's do it. So it was such an incredible, incredible experience. So it was, it did turn out to be a good day. That's true. Today is a good day too. Today is a good day to renew my mind, encourage my soul, align with truth, and walk in faith. Father, we come before you today. I thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing in the room. God, I thank you. God, I thank you just for this space, this opportunity to sit with the King. God, I ask that we would encounter your word today, encounter your truth, Holy Spirit. We give you full permission just to turn our lives upside down, to reshape our thinking, to wash us, with your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Let the church say amen. Before you sit down, I want you to fist bump somebody, a couple people, give them a hug, high five, invite them to lunch, and then you may be seated. Welcome to our online congregation that's watching today. I see Anna, Trina, Blanca, Brian, Jamie. Oh my goodness. Lorena. Uh, so many people watching online. That's just on Facebook. I know we've got several views on YouTube as well. And our website has quite a number of people watching. I just have your IP addresses. So I welcome all numbers one through 1000. Glad that you're here. And I'm really excited because during worship towards the tail end, I ran out to go and check on eKids because as you know, we launched newborn pre-K a couple of weeks ago, a month ago. Actually, this is the first time we have a first Sunday rollback around and we have five children in pre-K and newborn. Oh my goodness. I got so excited. And we have a nursing mom's room that is now open. So if you are nursing your child or you need to step out with your baby and want to watch service, we have a live stream that's going on in that room as well. So feel free to make yourself at home. Mikasa es su casa. We're in a series today called Because You Asked. And earlier in the year, you filled out questionnaire questions and asked, you know, PT, what do you think about this or that? Or what does the Bible say about this or that? And we spent the last several weeks kind of addressing these questions from a biblical perspective. The only ground rules that we have is that if the Bible speaks about the issue, 
we have agreed to hold fast to what the Bible says, not to reinterpret the Bible in context of our preferences and opinions or our philosophies, nor a political stance. We just take God at his word if it addresses it. If the Bible doesn't address it, then we look for principles throughout Scripture that might answer the question that the person is asking. And then finally, if we can't find any principles that answer the question, which hasn't happened yet, then I may choose to throw out my opinion. However, my opinion is the most worthless thing I'm offering to you today. As someone once said, I don't know if I should say this or not, but opinions are like butts. Everybody's got one and never mind. My opinion is kind of worthless, but I will tell you what my opinion is. If we get to a question like that, um, I, have, I have hopes today of finishing about six questions. So we're going to move fairly rapidly. Can you stay with me today? I see some of you laughing because you know that we answered only two last week. Question number one. Question number one says, I found out that in the 1200s, the Catholic Church decreed that Saturday would no longer be the day of worship and instead declared that the first day of the week, Sunday, is now the day of worship. How important is keeping the Sabbath to God? It's always been shrugged off, but if it's important to God, should we be worshiping and keeping the Sabbath too? It's a good question. It's a good Good question. How many of you have ever wondered about the Sabbath? How many of you have ever seen the video circulating on YouTube of the man who is warning you that if you don't worship on Saturday Sabbath, then you're going to hell? Anyone ever seen that video? You know what I'm talking about. This man um, is very mysterious. He's intriguing. He's got a really white smile, eyes that never blink. And he has convinced us that we're going to hell if we don't worship on Saturday. I've watched it. It scared me. It scared me. So I, I made sure that I knew what I knew and I believed what I believed. Um, and yes, it's true. The Catholic Church did change the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Not the 1200s. It was actually 400. AD. So it was very, very early on in the process. Um, so the question then, if the Catholic Church changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, should we be worshiping on Saturday? That's a good, it's a good one. Uh, it is Sunday morning here at the Exchange Church. So you may have an inkling of my belief on, this, on the matter already. But let's get into it. Let me just uh, lay a foundation for you because this one can trip us up. This is actually a deeper question than many of us are giving this, this uh, question asker credit for. Okay, uh, Let's talk first for just a moment about the disciples. The disciples. When did the disciples worship? The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 20 verse 7 that the disciples worshipped on the first day of the week. This is... The first day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. Acts 20 verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, 
when the disciples came together to break bread, by the way, when the scripture talks about breaking bread, it's referring to communion. So the disciples came together on the first day of the week to have communion. Uh, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. <laughs> I, I just want to reiterate. Paul spoke until midnight. His sermon lasted through lunch, through dinner, through that little tiny bowl of ice cream you think don't make a difference on your health at 9.30 or 10 p.m. to midnight. Paul preached so long that there was a teenager sitting in the window. His name was Eutychus. Eutychus fell asleep during Paul's preaching and he fell out of the third story window onto the ground and died. He did. His name is Eutychus. Eutychus too, if you fell three floors. The Bible said that Paul ran from the third floor down to the ground and he prayed over Eutychus and revived him and then went back and finished his sermon. Now, to date, no one has died from my sermons. To date. No one has fallen out of a window on the third floor from my sermon. So I hope to not let that happen today. But my point is, it was the first day of the week. And not only was it the first day of the week, it was the whole day. No. It was the whole day of the week. So we're just laying a, a foundation. I don't know why the disciples chose to worship on the first day of the week, but here's what I do know. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Maybe the disciples enjoyed worshiping on the first day of the week because it reminded them of the victory that was experienced when Jesus rose on the first day of the week. I don't know that to be true. That's just my opinion. That's worthless. But that's what I think my, maybe could be the case. They worshiped on the first day of the week, but, everybody say but. but. I like big buts in the Bible. But they did not just worship on the first day of the week. Acts 2 tells us that they worshiped every day of the week. Verse 46 says, so continuing daily, everybody say daily, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread. What is breaking bread? Communion. They took communion from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the original question was, how important is keeping the Sabbath to God? It's always been shrugged off, but if it's important to God, should we be worshiping and keeping the Sabbath too? The disciples worshiped on Sunday and every day. So keeping the Sabbath literally has nothing to do with worship. Keeping the Sabbath has zilch to do with corporate worship. You gathering here today is not you keeping the Sabbath, it's you engaging in corporate worship. The disciples did it on the first day of the week and every day of the week, but it had nothing to do with the Sabbath. They're totally unrelated, all right? Um, by the way, it is important to gather 
here today. Hebrews 10.25, you may remember that verse. It says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. Meet together even more as you see the day approaching. So as it seems like prophecy is unwinding and the end of days is getting closer, the Bible says that you and I should be gathering even more. Okay? So worship is separate from the Sabbath. Let's talk for a moment about the Sabbath. The Sabbath for the Jews today in Israel is Friday evening to Saturday evening. Their days start at sunset, go from sunset to sunset. All right, so whereas, say, the Seventh-day Adventist, the, the gentleman on social media that would convince you that you've got to be in church on Saturday, keep God's law, you're going to hell if you don't, he would tell you that Saturday is the Sabbath, but the Jews say that Friday evening to Saturday evening is the Sabbath. All right? So would Saturday night at 11 p.m. be the Sabbath? No. Some of you are like, Pastor, I did not sign up to go to class this morning. It would not because it is after sunset. All right? So the Sabbath would begin somewhere around 6 p.m., 6.30 p.m., 7 p.m. on a Friday night, and you would go all the way until the next Saturday. Now, the Catholic Church did change the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, but it had nothing to do with trying to throw you believers off. It had everything to do with anti-Semitism. The Catholic Church in 400 AD wanted desperately to convince the world that the Jews did not know God. And so we wanted to break away from their Sabbath, which was Friday evening to Saturday evening. We want it completely separate because we don't want to give them any credibility to their beliefs, to their God, Yahweh. We want it to be totally separate. So the Catholic Church, someone will look at the Catholic Church changing that and think, I'm not going to get fooled by the Catholic Church. They weren't out to fool you. They weren't out to fool believers. They were out to discredit the Jews and their God. They wanted the Catholic Church to be the primary so source of focus and attention in the religious world starting in 400 AD. Does that make sense? Let's dig into the purpose, the real purpose of the Sabbath. If the Sabbath has nothing to do with our worship here today, then what is the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, for you to understand the purpose of the Sabbath, we have to go and uh, use the law of first mention. When the Bible talks about something for the first time, if you ever have questions about anything in the Bible, always find the first time that the Bible talks about it because that sheds some light on the rest of the usage of that word or thing. So I'm going to take you to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, where we see the Sabbath developing. It says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. What, was this, what is the seventh day? In our Gregorian calendar, what day of the week is the seventh day? Saturday, yes. By the way, the days of the week are pagan, have pagan roots as well. But it's okay. Keep using Saturday. I'm not here to judge. 
I'm just letting you know that we have influences from all kinds of culture and worlds that we use and don't even realize the usage or the influence behind it, okay? God rested on the seventh day, which is our Saturday. Then we want to jump to Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall go to church and worship. Wait, what does it say? On it, you shall not do any work. Now that right there tells you this has nothing to do with church because if you're going to church on the Sabbath, but the Bible says you can't do work on the Sabbath, pastors are in a quandary. Because I'm working up here, baby. I'm, this may be your day of rest, but this is not my Sabbath. This is not my rest. I, I am working, and some crowds are harder to work than others. You're doing okay. You're doing okay this morning. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. That's funny. Hey, cows, sit. Cows, sit. This is a Sabbath. Don't. Right, can you imagine just the farmers that they owe the pressure of keeping all their livestock from doing work? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Holy. What is holy? Set apart, set aside, to not treat as common. If you treat the Sabbath as common, you are walking in profanity. You are profaning the day of rest. So God wanted the Sabbath to be remembered. He wanted you to have a day of rest. He wanted it set apart. Did you know that God values the Sabbath so much that he requires the land to have a Sabbath? Israel, for example, in Exodus 23, verses 10 through 11, it tells us that six years you shall sow your land and gather in the produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest, be fallow. So when the Jews were in Israel, they could work the land for six years, and on the seventh, the Sabbath, they had to let it rest. Now, God thinks this is really important because we know that they were captured by the Babylonians and they went into 7D, 70 years of slavery because they didn't let the land rest. They lived on the land for 400, if you can follow the math, 490 years. Out of 490 years, every seven years, there should have been one year of rest on the land. They did not allow the land to rest. The Babylonians captured them, and they were in slavery for 70 years. That's one year of rest for every seven-year cycle in the group of 490 years that the Israelites were in the land. The Sabbath is important. I just imagine, I don't know that this happened, but I just imagine every seventh year when they were working the land, when they should have been letting it rest, I, I just imagine like the angels looking down thinking, whew, you better let that land rest or that, that, 
Land is going to make you rest. Kind of like us. You better give your body some downtime or your body is going to take downtime and it's going to be at a time that's not opportune. There is a principle of the Sabbath and rest and rhythm all throughout Scripture. Should we honor the Sabbath? Yes. But what is it? What really is the Sabbath? I'm just taking some time on this question. Is this okay? It's helping you to really digest what the Sabbath is. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. We see a principle developing. Could it be on day seven of creation that God was already foreshadowing the rest that you and I find in Jesus? The Sabbath that he was having the Jews observe every seven days and wanting the land to observe it every seventh year, could that have been just another echo of the fact that Messiah is on his way and in him you will find your Sabbath, your rest. In him you will be set apart. In him you will be holy. Colossians 2, 16 through 17 makes it even more clear. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or what? A Sabbath. Don't you let anyone judge you about the Sabbath day, Mr. YouTube man. I should read the rest of that. Verse 17 these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The Sabbath was a shadow of the thing to come. The reality of the Sabbath is found in Christ. The Sabbath points to the work of Christ in our life. You don't have to work for your salvation. You get to rest. You don't have to earn your entry into heaven. It's already been earned. You get to rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. So we see in all the texts that we've read here today on the Sabbath, we see a couple of things I just want to highlight to you. The Sabbath has a spiritual application the spiritual application being that Jesus is our rest. He is our Sabbath. The Sabbath has found its completion in him. We don't have to work for our salvation. It also, though, has a physical application. The physical application, just like the land resting, is that rhythms of rest and being set apart and taking downtime are good for you. Good for you. There's a physical application. There's also a historical application application. When I take a Sabbath, when I set aside a time, I am pointing back to the fact that God created the heavens and the earth and everything therein, and on the seventh day, he rested. When I take my Sabbath, I am giving honor to what God created in the seven days of creation, historically. But there's also a prophetic application. 
when I take a Sabbath, I am pointing forward to the Sabbath that is yet to come. There are 6,000 years of human history that's going to take place. Six days. Wait a minute. Second Peter said, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Actually, he said, be careful to not forget this one very important detail. A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So if there is six days of work, six days of human history, that's 6,000 years, there's coming a seventh day or a final thousand years that the Bible talks about, the millennium, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is ruling this earth from Israel, from Jerusalem. He is the one with all power and authority sitting there in the temple. He's going to rule the earth for 1,000 years. That is the Sabbath of human history. So when I take a Sabbath now, I am prophetically looking into the future, saying there's coming a day when everything in the world is going to be set right, because every ruler is human today. But there's coming a day where the King of Kings... The Lord of Lords will rule all of humanity. So my Sabbath looks back, it looks forward, it has a physical application and a spiritual application. Now, just to make sure that we don't allow the Sabbath to become a work that we do. I think you should take a Sabbath. I think you should have downtime every seven days. I don't know what that looks like for you. I'm not legalistic enough to say that it needs to begin at a sundown and go to a sundown, or it needs to be a full 24-hour period. I think that's something you can work out with God. But if you're not giving yourself downtime once every seven days, you are going against the way you are physically and spiritually wired to live. So I know we have seasons where we have to work overtime and we got to really, you know, hustle seven days a week and we have to do X, Y, and Z. I get it, but that should not be the place from which we live our life regularly. And to make sure that you understand, it's not about performing for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for your benefit. I'll finish this question with Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is, this is my conclusion on a very good question, whoever asked that question. My conclusion is this. The Sabbath is beneficial for us. It's a day of rest. It's a good rhythm. It's a way to honor God, a way to remember, a way to look forward. But if but it found its legal requirement. The Sabbath found its Old Testament legal requirement in Jesus Christ. So you are free to show up and worship every day of the week. Amen. All right, next question. Thank you. This is fun. I really like these questions. The next one comes from someone who likes details in the Bible. And this question says, what are the practices of the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2.6? My answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Let's go ahead and read Revelation 2.6. It says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. 
So Jesus is talking to the church at Ephesus, who he's praising, and he says that he likes the fact that they hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, if Jesus likes that this church hates the work, works of the Nicolaitans, I probably don't want to do those works. Are you with me? Are you following? Are you tracking? And then we go into the church of Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. The Nicolaitans are mentioned again. And it says, I have a few things against you. So Jesus has a few things against this church in Pergamum. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay. So to the church of Ephesus, Jesus is happy that that church hates the work of Nicolaitans. And then to the church of Pergamum, Jesus says, you're adopting the works of Pergamum, Pergamum, and I'm holding that against you. All right, so this person, whoever asked this question, is asking a really very important question that we might want to know. The earliest identification of Nicolaitans we find in the early church writers uh, from Tertullian to Origen to many of the church fathers that we know in the very early church, some 200 AD to 400 AD, um, and as late as 900 to 1200 AD as well are some writings. Uh, Primarily, though, unfortunately, the early writers of, of history don't really reference the doctrine of this individual, of the Nicolaitans. Uh, they just don't say much about the heresy. We know from Scripture that God hates it. We know from Scripture that God likes it if you hate it. But we don't know much about it. The, the best principle that we can pull for those who want to know more about the Nicolaitans is looking at verses 14 through 15. It is tied apparently close closely to the teaching of Balaam. So Nicolaitans and the teachings of Balaam are spoken of together. That would tell us that it's probably similar teachings. Now we do know what the teaching of Balaam is. The teaching of Balaam is that you should not eat meat sacrificed to idols, and you should not support and partake of sexual immorality. That's the teaching of Balaam in verses 14 through 15. So Paul's conclusion is is that you should not eat meat, sacrifice to idols, but it's okay if you go and buy the meat at a market. So he's not speaking against meat. He's just saying, get it from the market. Don't go to a, a pagan ritual and festival and eat the meat because that pagan ritual and festival is honoring a God that's not Yahweh. And that's the teaching of Balaam. All right, the Nicolaitans then appear to be, from what we just discussed, they, they appear to be a group of people that corrupt God's people by suggesting compromise with the culture of the day. The culture of the day said, hey, you want some good meat? Let's go to this pagan festival. Let's, let's eat the meat. It's wonderful. And God is saying, the meat's not really the problem. It's the motivation behind eating the meat there at the pagan festival. Okay. Now, this is a good, we're going to answer some more questions next week as well when we talk about motivations that drive things. We've had some Enneagram questions. We've had some Christmas questions. 
uh, this, this kind of alludes to that. It's not so much about the meat. It's about the context of the meat. So you can eat the meat on your kitchen table, give glory to God. Whatever you do, do it as if doing it for God, not for men. Give glory to God, but don't eat the meat at a pagan festival. Are you with me? So, uh, please do not invite me or my wife to any seances or any of your pagan rituals. I don't care how good the steak is. Leave it on my door. Then I'll eat it. All right. I hope that answers the question, Nicolaitans. It's kind of an ambiguous answer because we don't really have solid evidence for it, but we used a principle to solve that, that question. Next question. I like this one. If God created the devil, then does the Bible lead you to believe that God's goal is to redeem him? If he is redeemed, then will hell not exist? Will we be or have one shared consciousness? That's a good question right there. Now, some of you are like, I, I already don't agree. <laughs> Let me show you where they, they might be getting this question from. Colossians 1. I don't have this on the screen. You'll have to listen. Oh. Colossians 1, 19, 19 and 20. says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, Ooh. by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, now, wait a minute. That can be a little confusing. The blood of Jesus is going to reconcile to himself all, A-L-L. -L. It didn't say some. It said all things. And it took it a step further to make it even more confusing and said not just all things on earth, but all things on earth and in heaven. Oh, okay, how many now with that verse, you got a little more iffy on your stance. You're like, I'm curious now. This is a little bit confusing. The blood of Jesus is pretty powerful. Okay, um, so we know that Colossians 1, 19 through 20 can be a little confusing we actually have doctrines, not at this church, not in any church that I'm a partner of, but I know pastors who have said Jesus is going to redeem all things, all humans, and even the devil. At the end of time, right now the devil's bad, but at the end of time, the power of Jesus is so powerful. And, and please don't ever cut this out of context of this whole answer and blast me on YouTube for heresy. They have said that Jesus will redeem all things to himself because Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says that's the case. So I can at least see why this question might be asked, why it's a little bit confusing, but let me teach you a hermeneutic principle. In hermeneutics, studying the Bible, when you come across something like Colossians 1, 19 and 20, when it's a little bit fuzzy, it's a little unclear, there's this rule that says, let the clearer passages interpret the unclear. So I wouldn't make a doctrine based on Colossians 1, 19, and 20, because it's a little fuzzy, right? I mean, does that mean that Jesus is going to redeem aliens? Because they're in the heavens. It's a little fuzzy. Can we just admit, I'll move on, the more you give me some verbal affirmation and cue that you got it. You know what I'm, It's a little confusing. 
So we're going to go to something that's a little more clear to define Colossians 1, 19 through 20. All right? Something more clear is Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. That's clear. That's clear. That is crystal clear. And in that verse, we know that all things work together for the good of those, those meaning a subset, not all, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we know from Romans 8, 28, without a shadow of a doubt, that there are some outside of those that don't love God and are not called according to his purpose, so things won't go well for them, right? So we know that that's true. Also, we're going to take it a step further to something even more clear than Romans 8, 28, and that's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, Jesus, by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. What's he going to do to the devil? Destroy the devil. Verse 15, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps. Oh, you can't get more clear than this. It's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So Jesus had to become one of us so that he could set us free. And his help is not for the angels, the Bible says. Uh, To make it even more clear, let's just put the nail in this coffin today. Let's look at the devil's end. The enemy, the devil, Lucifer's end is found in Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I don't think we can get any clearer than that, so we'll let that interpret the unclear of Colossians chapter 1. Next question. You guys want one or two more questions answered? Uh, You were getting two anyway. I'm just glad we're in unity. Why does God allow wicked rulers to rule a country? Well, we do know that according to Daniel 2.21, that God removes kings and he raises up kings. There is, there is not a king in any position of authority that God himself did not allow that to happen. So why does God allow wicked rulers to rule a country? You know, in 1 Samuel, the Israelites weren't being ruled by kings at the time. And they just were looking around at all these other people who had a king, and they thought, oh, we want to be like them. God, give us a king. Give us a king. We don't want, we don't want prophets, and we don't want judges. We want a king. We want a king. And the text even says that they're shouting, give us a king. 
And so God did. Gave them King Saul. And it didn't go so well for them. Bottom line is God gives people, God loves you enough to give you what you want. First Samuel 8, 18 says, In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's a scary thought. This is why I don't put my hope in a president. My hope is in Jesus. I don't want to put my hope in a man or a woman in leadership over our country because when it all hits the fan, I want to be able to look at God and say, I've trusted you all along. Not him, not her, not them. I've trusted you. And when my trust is in him, then he will show up. But if I just think that this man or this woman is going to save the day, God is going to allow that to happen. He's going to give us what we want as a nation. And then we as a nation will deal with the consequences of who we've elected. Oh, the weight. The weight of that. So why does God allow wicked rulers of a nation? Number one, it's because people for whatever reason, vote for wicked rulers. By the way, if you just thought that was a spar against your political opponent, I'm talking to you too. Because when we put our faith in political advocates and not in Jesus, we're putting our hope in wickedness. But another reason that God allows wicked rulers to rule a country, John Calvin, one of our early writers said when God wants to judge a nation he gives them wicked rulers think about that when God wants to judge a nation he gives them wicked rulers so that the wicked rulers will bring judgment on the nation for God This isn't a political statement. This is a biblical statement. You need to understand when you're voting that the grace of God applies to individuals, not nations. Jesus died for individuals, not nations. So when you sin, the grace of God rushes in and Jesus picks you up and shakes off the dirt and gives you a hug and a kiss on the cheek. But when we vote into office people that are anti-God and our nation establishes principles as a nation, the same principle, by the way, that I might do as an individual and the grace of God covers me, when a nation endorses it, there is no grace for that. There's judgment. This is why I tell you at every election, vote the Bible. You get alone with Jesus, Holy Spirit, in your prayer closet, and you go through all these people and you see where you land. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I, don't, I believe that you hear from God enough to know. I just encourage you, vote the Bible because nations are held to a different standard than individuals. So the grace of God may keep me 
while my nation is being destroyed? Why does God allow wicked rulers to rule a country? Because he gives us what we want and our nation might need judgment. Last question. This is a good question. What about people who have never been introduced to Jesus? Will they still burn in hell? (laughs) I, I like that. What about the people who have never been introduced to Jesus? Will they still burn in hell? I don't know how many people groups there are across the globe that have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm sure there are some that we've not reached. Maybe. I don't know. Somewhere in the outback, the aboriginal people or or the indigenous peoples of the world, maybe they've not actually heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And let's say they get eaten by a tiger or a shark. What happens to the people who've not yet been introduced to Jesus? Will they still burn in hell? That's a good question. You ready for the answer? The answer is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible, let's zero in on verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 20. His eternal power and divine nature can be clearly perceived If no word is ever spoken from a human, there is not a single person on planet Earth that will ever die or has ever died that has not encountered the reality and the truth that God is real. God makes it known himself so that they are without excuse. Isn't that good news? That God loves humanity so much that if we've never sent a missionary to that one little place and a little place called a little place of a little place, God will make sure that they know. They will have an opportunity to embrace their creator so they are without excuse because God loves them just that much. Will you please stand to your feet? You guys are asking some great questions. I've enjoyed this series. I think maybe we'll go one more week answering some questions. I want to invite you, by the way, after lunch, I want you to go grab some lunch, spend about an hour, hour and a half, whatever it is that you need to do for lunch, and then come back to the church here. We have a host of individuals coming to get ready for the Christmas service. We're doing decor stuff crafty stuff, but you don't have to have any craft skills. It just requires paper and a stapler. As long as you're mature enough to Jordan and Ryan not to open the stapler and like staple eyeballs, uh, you can you can help this. We're just making, how many rings are we making? 40,000. Awesome. 
40,000 rings getting ready for Christmas. We would love for you to join us and be a part of that. We're going to have uh, a lot of people here helping. Not only that, we're going to be visited by the Dallas Cowboys at 3 o'clock today. The game will be played on the big screen, so you won't miss the Cowboys. Wow, wow. I got more reaction out of that than any point in my sermon today. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to pray us out today. Oh, man. Thank you, Holy Spirit, just for the opportunity to know you and your word. Your word is so alive and it's so rich. God, I ask that you would help us to embrace it. Let it grow us. Let it expand our thinking. Let us, God, just perceive life the way that you do. Father, if there's anyone in the room today that doesn't yet know you, God, would you bring us to a place of repentance, a place to where we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for our sin, that he was placed in a grave, and on the third day he rose again, on the first day of the week. God, let us, let us take a moment just to acknowledge that. And if you're in the room, if you're here this morning, and in your heart you're saying, I believe, I choose, I say yes to Jesus. That's all it takes to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sin. By the way, it wasn't the Jews that killed Jesus. It was your sin. It was your sin that killed him. You're ready to come into right standing with God, into relationship with him. We do that by faith today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 If you just said yes to Jesus in your heart, will you please scan the QR code that's on the screen today, or you can catch it at the information desk today. All it takes is repentance, that changing of the mind from your way to his way. So glad that you're here. Can we celebrate all the decisions for Jesus today? Awesome. After lunch, we'll see you back here. We're going to have some fun watching the Cowboys game and doing some decor stuff. Now that you've been to church, go be the church. God bless you. We love you.